Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast where two licensed professional counselors and approved EMDR consultants discuss the latest research and resources for trauma treatment and EMDR therapy. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Jen and I are here today with a very special guest that we're super excited to introduce to you guys. So we have Dr. Michelle Morrissey with us today that's going to be doing an interview on EMDR with uh, patients with TBI. And this is a topic that both Jen and I are excited to uh, interview you about because we know very little about it. (laughs) So, uh, you know, this is kind of a specialty population, but also a pretty common population. Um, And I think that getting the opportunity to hear somebody that is really specialized in this area uh, talk in depth about how to make adjustments and make EMDR effective for this population um, is going to be really, really beneficial for a lot of us. So thank you so much for being with us today and doing this. You're very welcome. Yeah. Um, So before we launch into our list of questions, because we've got a bunch of them, can you just kind of share with our listeners who you are, where you come from, what you're all about, things like that? Okay, um, let's see. I come from Detroit and I'm in Colorado. So I moved here when I was a kid, very diverse background, very traumatic background. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up going to the University of Phoenix in Reno to get my master's in marriage and family therapy because they didn't have uh, one here in Colorado. Okay. And while I was there, one of my professors was a Vietnam vet and just raved about EMDR. And I'm like, Wow, I I was at a stuck point with my own trauma, right, and worked as far as I could, and then EMDR just blew my mind. So the day I finished my master's, I was back on a plane to Colorado to get trained. Oh, (laughs) Um, and they recommended like 20 hours of practice. By the time I hit part two, I had 75 hours. I was using it like crazy, absolutely loved it. As I moved along and I was treating people. I didn't even know about Andrea because I was trained by the Institute. Okay. And a Vietnam veteran came up from New Mexico and said, well, are you um, certified? And I'm like, what's that? So once I realized Andrea was out there, then I had to get certified. And then I loved it so much. I became a consultant. And then I was like, oh my God, I've got to teach this to people because it's phenomenal. Totally relate to that story. (laughs) Right. Um, So in the midst of all of that, then I was also in my PhD program. And because I was already licensed, they're like, what are we going to do for this portion of your education? I said, well, I have to learn to write a manual to become a trainer. It's kind of like writing a book or a dissertation that would help me in the process. And they approved it. So I was able to take that semester and use it uh, basically twofold so that I could become a trainer and for educational purposes. Very cool. Yeah. And they hadn't heard of it. So I'm like a double MFT. So my PhD is also in marriage and family therapy. Um, and they're like, how can you do EMDR with couples? And, and it's like, well, you'd be blown away if you knew all the ways you could use EMDR. Um, when I was, uh, in small communities, I had people coming up to me like, uh, can you use EMDR for this? What about that? And in the process of um, either certification or approved consultant, it must have been certification. um, I was going for a grant 
because uh, it was a very poor community and they didn't have the funding in the community mental health to help with certification and training and the hours. Mm -hmm. And so we went for a grant and when I pitched it, they're like, oh my God, my nephew had a, TB, had a brain injury. And since then he's been like depressed, his grades are slipping. Can you use EMDR for this? And I'm like, why not? Yeah. <laughs> and so I'm like one of those that, and I've been really thinking about how did I get there? So a part of me looks at EMDR like I'm a reverse engineer, mm. right? People come to us as this completed project and then it's our job to backtrack how they got there from the trauma, the beliefs and all of that, yeah. right? Yes. And ever since I was a kid, like little, I would take things apart. If they were broke, I took them apart and tried to fix them. And for the most part, I learned how to fix them. So my perspective, I think, is different from most where they're afraid of breaking somebody. And I look at it as they're already broken. So what can I do to help fix it? Yeah. Yeah. That makes so much so sense. I started to work with TBIs mm -hmm. and then saw the results with that and then just continued and continued um, until it was like, wow, this um, Louise Maxfield, who just retired as the journal editor, right? Yeah. yeah. She said, would you write an article? This isn't out there. And I said, well, before I do that, I'm trying to work on an advanced training. And it was about four or five years ago, I developed an advanced training so that other people can learn how to do this. So it's not just me. Teach yeah. a man to fish or give him a fish, right? Yeah. 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 I love the reverse engineer mm -hmm. idea. Mm -hmm. and, and really what I hear and what you're sharing is that it was from a lack of fear and a, um, an abundance of curiosity that you were able to move into that population and really start to figure out how can I work with this population, individuals who have had a traumatic brain injury. I think for myself, even included in that and other people that I consult with um, have this fear of like, am I going to do something wrong? Is it even mm -hmm. possible? Mm -hmm. Can they even reprocess material? Am I going to hurt something? And so there's a hesitancy to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. So I love hearing that in you, like a lack of fear and an abundance of curiosity. And that's the biggest thing I'm hearing. I'm getting a lot of therapists doing like PRN consultation to understand, but that all of them are coming from fear, yeah. which is, I don't want to, I don't want to harm anybody. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so it's like, how can I help them? What is it that I do? Or how did I approach it differently so that I can help alleviate other people's fear so they can then start treating the population? I love that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so much of the time as the therapist, if we have support to feel confident with our clients, we get such better results um, because we're going into it feeling supported and feeling uh, that curiosity rather than that fear. And it really changes the way that we show up with our clients. Definitely. Well, okay. So just as a, a starting question, can you talk a little bit about um, EMDR with TBI and does it affect its effectiveness? What kind of results are reasonable to expect? And uh, um, also, I'm just really curious about the spectrum of TBI, because mm -hmm. TBI is an umbrella term, yes. um, but there is a lot of variation and difference in what that presentation actually is. So can you kind of speak to the spectrum of what you see and how that impacts the, uh, the effectiveness and the expectations of EMDR's outcomes? Definitely. Um, and yeah, it is. If you use the term TBI, most clients will say no. 
right? I've never had one because they're thinking that complete brain reset, I'm in a coma, I have to relearn to walk and stuff. Mm -hmm. That is the severe TBI population. Yeah. And I've tried it with several people who've had those severe TBIs Mm -hmm. with very minimal success. Okay. Okay. Um, other modalities seem to work with that. Uh, like recently, uh, Sarah said is something that is helping a client of mine who's had that severe TBI. And then I use EMDR to kind of moderate the changes that are going on and bring down some anxiety. Okay. But it works great with mild and moderate TBIs. So breaking it down, mild is like the concussive part of it, right? Yeah. Um, moderate, I would look at it more, and I know there's a breakdown and I teach it differently in class, but moderate, I would say, would be those who have cumulative mm-hmm. uh, head injuries. Mm-hmm. Because now it's not just the one where it's kind of like you're waiting in water and it's a little murky. The moderate TBI with the cumulative effect is more like looking at it like a beaver dam. And you've got garbage and leaves and twigs and and branches and logs, right? And it's blocking the water. And the water obviously would be the neurological flow of memories and everything and how you have to peel things away in order for the water to start trickling through. Mm -hmm. So with TBIs, you don't want to go in with a bulldozer and remove the dam because they're already overwhelmed and flooded Mm -hmm. um, from the brain injury. Right. Everything like I, I I call it brain porn. I do my brain porn every <laughs> every morning. And I will watch TED Talks on neurobiology. I'm reading oh, neurobiology. We can, we can be friends, Michelle. We deeply <laughs> resonate with the the enjoyment of brain porn. <laughs> or really any nervous system porn. Someday I'll get really excited and talk about the mycelium web and how that looks identical to uh, neurons in the brain and in the nervous system and in the fascial system, but that's for another day. (laughs) (laughs) And so when I do that, then I'm learning like every organ in the brain oscillates at a different frequency, right? And it has its specific frequency so that they can work independently and do their functions. And it's almost as if when somebody gets a traumatic brain injury, that those get off kilter and the gears are switched. And what should be oscillating at 10 might be oscillating at 30. And what's oscillating at 30 is oscillating at 10. And so they have all these problems with sleep, with moods, depression, anxiety, uh, flashbacks, PTSD. It's kind of like that damn breaks. So we don't want to go in the worst thing possible. We want to like stand at the side of the river, look in it. What do we see? Let's go pick a few leaves out. Mm -hmm. Let's go take this twig out. So I definitely approach TBIs differently than you would standard EMDR therapy. So part of what I'm hearing is the importance of uh, slowness, especially at the beginning and titrating the experience for them. Yes. And, And being really mindful about is their system prepared for this particular target? And so we're not gonna maybe sequence it the way that we would with somebody that isn't dealing with the, the extra um, barriers that their system is dealing with. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So with the metaphor of like the beaver dam, pulling the twigs is like a low impact target, like 
yes. like processing through something smaller mm -hmm. and we're going to clear out some of that debris to get some of the flow of information happening mm -hmm. before we target those big pieces. Exactly. It, it feels similar to me of how we would approach like a highly traumatized individual, maybe not as a result of a TBI, but high dissociation or right. something like that. Is that, yeah. is that accurate? PTSD. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I treat a lot of complex PTSD. And once I noticed the TBI, then that connection was like, ding, ding, ding. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I even use a lot of that with quite a few clients is let's start at the lower target. Yeah. It builds their confidence in EMDR rather than us. So I'm not taking six months to build therapeutic rapport. Right. Mm -hmm. I do the intake, I do the history taking, I do resourcing, we jump right into EMDR yeah. because we start low and we work our way up. Right, right. So that to me is a product of your confidence moving into this population and really trusting that if you go slow at the beginning and do it right at the beginning, you don't have to be afraid of doing EMDR with this population as long as you're doing it mindfully. Um, and really paying attention to the impact that it's having on them. So rather than waiting for uh, enough therapeutic rapport or waiting to feel really sure that this is gonna go well, you're kind of testing the waters a little bit and then adjusting the plan as you're getting more information from their system. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Is there a difference that you see based on the location in the brain where the injury has occurred? Mm -hmm. Like, is that, is that something that is important Relevant. to, mm -hmm. to be informed about in the history taking? Is that, how does that affect processing or even affect the targets that you're working on? It definitely does. Not just the location, but um, the type of injury. So if they have the front to back injury, they do really well with EMDR because there's it's all gray matter injury all on the surface. When it shears and it hits side to side, and so these are the questions you ask in history taking. Like when you were knocked through with the football and you went this way, your brain automatically is gonna go back and forth. Right. You're gonna to start to shear away at the white matter and the axons, mm. right, and the communication hubs. And it's gonna be um, not more difficult, but it's gonna be more challenging right? As far as communication, them not finding the words, not knowing maybe the emotions over here and the pictures over here, and they can't connect. Okay. okay. So for, for the listeners, when she talks about that, um, she's putting her fists together and kind of showing in that side to side, there's a, a the separation of the fist becomes wedged or, or split front to back. They still maintain the connection there, but it's yeah. still like a rocking or a shaking. Mm -hmm. So just for my curiosity, Michelle, would, um, when you're talking about that, is the, the injury impacting the corpus callosum and the communicative tissue between the hemispheres, or is it other regions that are most impacted? Other regions. It's not always the corpus callosum. It is just the rich communication hubs. Yeah. And those have the axons and the axons have the potassium, the calcium and the sodium. Yes. So when those axons break, you get a release of all of those uh, chemicals in the brain and then the receptors are picking up too much. And then people will see, like the experts will see, oh, they're, they're acting bipolar and they'll wanna treat them with bipolar meds. When it's not, it's a break in that axon and it's like needing to wait for those to either repair and heal or to quit uh, the uptake of all of that so the brain will settle down. So, 
just based on that, I'm super curious about effectiveness of certain medications to help with that process of um, either inhibiting the reuptake of, of some of those or helping to balance out those neurochemicals in the healing process. Is that part of a treatment protocol for a lot of these folks? For some, yes. And I was, I didn't even think about looking at that, but there is a list of um, most common medications given to people with TBIs yeah. and then this is, and vitamins as well. They're looking at zinc. Yes. Um, and other, uh, the fatty acids like omega-3 and six. Mm, yeah. right? And so they're looking at other things so that people don't always have to be on the heavy uh, medications, but they can try more natural routes as well. So this might be jumping into a later question we have, but it feels relevant here. We're talking about the um, trauma effect of the actual injury and what that's doing in the brain and how that then affects, you know, the um, experience of that that needs process. But then what you mentioned after that is going into and people labeling, oh, this is bipolar, or mm. there's then the interpersonal experience of the responsiveness that is further traumatizing and installing that into their systems and having a later lasting impact. So it's, it's almost, it's very layered. Like there's it's not so. just the addressing of being aware of how the injury affected the system, but then how life from that moment on right. further Adjusting. perpetuated. Yeah. Well, and I'm, I'm even curious about uh, grief work around the loss of the previous mm -hmm. uh, version of themselves and the adjustment to this new normal and uh, you know how we kind of help them navigate just like we would with any injury that has changed them from the person that they used to be. Um, is that something that you tend to target with people? Totally. Yeah, yeah. So I had one who was actually a, um, uh, a nurse who went to the community and educated people on traumatic brain injuries. Wow. And she came to me after a traumatic brain injury and her doctor that she used to go around and educate with was a sports injury TBI guy and couldn't believe that she could have a TBI from a camping accident and said, no, it's not a TBI. You're menopausal, you're anxious. And so he was poo-pooing off her symptoms as being a woman or pre-menopausal or a mother worried about her sons playing football and didn't dig deeper. So then she has more length of time, more symptoms coming up without and support. without support, exactly. So there's a lot of still misinformation among supposed experts in the field. And I pulled up one study that said that there's of the experts, they scored 50% or less on these TBI tests to actually pinpoint who's had a traumatic brain injury or what is a traumatic brain injury or how to treat it. Yeah. So this reminds me of the incredible need for a re-education, a re-understanding around what is considered emotional and psychological trauma, mm -hmm. how we you know, have distilled that to a point uh, in the DSM and informal education that is borderline unuseful. Well, it is unuseful and then really, really not uh, based in neurobiological reality. So it sounds like something similar has happened with TBI where people assume it has to be the major car accident or the obvious concussion where you blacked out. But what you're saying is a camping accident with a significant bump on the head 
can still have really lasting impact. Yes. Wow. Yeah, because it was some kind of um, tent pole. Yeah. And a gust of wind came up and knocked her in the head. So mm -hmm. she knocked in the head sideways oh. and then fell to the ground and hit her head on the ground. Yeah, and, and so bounced she, again. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So there's um, a type of injury, the side to side, the front to back. What about the specific location in the brain? Yeah. So then it's understanding what's the function of the brain. If they get hit in the prefrontal cortex, that's going to affect uh, logic and reasoning. If they get hit in the back, right, it could affect their vision and their processing of things. Wow. Uh, so it's really kind of understanding the parts of the brain and what could be impacted and what those parts of the brain actually do so that you look at them as more of a whole 3D person instead of a two-dimensional yes. on paper. Yeah. So with that information, then does that, do you see that determine whether or not it could be, like EMDR could be effective or not, or just that we need to hold that awareness and adapt the protocol and adapt our approach based on our understanding of what is being affected where the injury is. Yeah, uh, it's the second part of that. Mm -hmm. so, and there's also concussive blasts, like I've worked with military veterans and the, the government set out that they were, there was this sweet number of blasts that they were allowed to make per day, per day, <laughs> wow. right? And so I don't remember the number because this was a few years ago, but it, let's say it was 10, that they were allowed to shoot 10 IEDs a day before they have to pass it on because of that blast radius and the concussions. Whoa. And the guys reported they were doing at least three times that in war. So they were doing 20, 30, 35 a day instead of the number that they were allowed. Well, what are you going to do? Pass the IED around and go, well, I met my 10 for the day. Right. <laughs> I've met my 10. Who's going to shoot this, right? Yes. Mm. Wow. So, so the cumulative effect of small concussive force um, and I'm assuming there's other jobs where that's really relevant. Mm -hmm. yes. I mean, yes, certainly in the military, but there's probably, you know, construction situations and all kinds of things where somebody that's doing a small concussive thing repetitively, it could have that cumulative impact. Yes. Wow. Which then sets them up to be more susceptible for more falls and more TBIs. Yeah. Okay. Can you talk about that? Because this is something that I've been aware of that, um, it's kind of like a panic attack in that once you've had one, the likelihood of having one again and the impact of it is sort of exponential. And in TBI, there's something similar that happens that once one has happened, you're more susceptible for it to happen again, and it's more likely for it to be significant. So why is that and how does that usually look? Okay, so it's usually the part of the brain that gets impacted in the TBI. Remember, I was talking like the different gears in the brain are oscillating different frequencies. Well, if they don't get fixed or repaired at that time, mm -hmm. they continue to, I guess, adapt, but they're still not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. So it throws off your um, perception, your depth perception. And so, and I had somebody tell me that it looked like I could reach under the table and grab this thing and that I had enough distance to clear my head. And then it was a solid wood table and they came up, smacked their head and saw stars and they ended up feeling worse again. Wow. So tripping, yeah. falling, misjudging distance all becomes uh, balance issues become their susceptibility to more and more TBIs. 
Okay. Can okay. EMDR play a role in that resetting in, yes. in any way of like getting it back in rhythm in the way it is designed to be? Yes. So the beauty of EMDR is it comes in at 1.5 Hertz, which they say is like a trickle charger and it puts all the spots of the brain back to their normal functioning so that it can heal and resume. Now it doesn't mean they're a hundred percent better. Like the nurse once she said, this was my only TBI. And once I started digging in her history, she ended up having, this was her fourth or fifth TBI. Wow. And she just didn't put it together. She hadn't put that label on it. Exactly. So she ended up, I would say probably 90 to 95% improvement from where she was. And after a year and a half, she was able to go back to work, but not as an ER nurse because it was too much information. She was still get overwhelmed, still need to take brain breaks. Mm. Um, and so she found a different way to be a nurse and actually loves what she's doing now. So it's like there's a benefit for it if you don't mind the change and altering your perception of I can't do this, but I could still do this. Right. Right. So accepting some version of limitation, but also really having hope and belief in we can make a lot of progress. Yeah. yeah. And memory seems to be another one. So speech and memory seem to be some long lasting effects. Um, like my sister, she's had four TBIs. And if I'm the only one who's doing this, yes, I treated my sister. Yeah, of course. In the EMDR community, we're all really used to like, no, my family needs this. Yes. <laughs> as long as there's not some obvious reason why we shouldn't. Yeah. Yes, we totally get that. Good. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So someone else said, really? It's like, okay, if if yeah. your if your uncle is a neurosurgeon and he specializes in this thing, are you going to go without treatment because it's a relative? I don't think so. <laughs> no, no. And because this is such a unique specialty that you have, of course mm -hmm. you would. Yeah. I totally. Yeah. yeah. So I worked with her and she had, she still has memory issues. And it was after the fourth one, she was actually laid out for mm -hmm. a month. Hmm. So it took a long time to recover. And she ended up going back to school to become a massage therapist. And she's like, how do I remember this stuff? Oh, and yeah. so she had those long-term or short-term memory issues. So let's look at um, using mnemonics, right? Let's look at putting it to music or a beat that you can help remember that this muscle's origin is here. This muscle's insertion is there, right? And um, flashcards, whiteboards, like if you're going to the grocery store, right? Have a small whiteboard in your car when you get to the grocery store, take it with you, then erase it and you always have it. Yeah. You GPS if you can't remember where you're going. So they're little brain hacks. I call them to help them still function in the world afterwards. So, so as you're talking about that, there's a part of me that's thinking about um, in the EMDR process using future templating Definitely. to really kind of help install this new way of maneuvering through the world um, uh, making the emotional adjustments to, okay, this is what I have to do now. And what does that mean about me and for me and all the emotional and grief work that has to happen in response to that, but also installing this feeling of, I can do this. Like I can function in a new way that is really supportive and I can do everything that I want to do. I'm not limited. It's just different. Yes, exactly. No different than like the Olympic swimmer who broke her back here in Colorado skiing. And then in the hospital, she's like, I'm going to be in Paralympics. 
Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Join the mindset of this yeah. won't stop me. Right. Right. Yeah. That's beautiful. Okay. Well, so, um, I really want to make sure that we, uh, kind of cover some of these topics that you brought up because I'm sure. very, very curious about them. So one is, uh, how do you make adjustments to bilateral stimulation, dual awareness stimulation for folks with TBI? Like what, what considerations are there? Um, most of the time, if it's anything more than one small concussion, don't do eye movements because it gives them headaches. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right? Um, some of the veterans are like, well, I deal with daily headaches anyway, so I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to tough it through. It on it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so some of them still did the eye movements. Other people are no. So it's either tappers, mm. auditory, or in light of the whole COVID thing and virtual therapy, they can get some foam balls from Walmart right in the toy section and they can squeeze the balls and deliver the EMDR and you just tell them the speed at which to do it. Okay. So the speed's going to be slower. Your sets are going to okay. be shorter, right? Yeah. And you stay away from eye movements. So, so uh, just because I know listeners will want to know how slow is slow and how short is short. <laughs> okay. So that's a, a good question. Yeah. When, when you start out, it's probably going to be like a set of 12. Okay. okay? Yeah. And it's going to be like one and a half Hertz is like maybe one eye movement per second, right? Mm -hmm. So it's going to be a whole lot slower than this, like Francine said, but we're not doing eye movements, but we're talking speed. If yeah. you use the TAC audio scans, right, you're going to be about a three, three and a half. Okay. Okay. So yeah, if they have the neurotech scanners with the little dial, then yes. they're at about a three. Okay. All right. And then of course, right. You just adjust if it's too fast or too slow, everybody's different, yes. right? But that's a good starting point. Yes. Excellent. You know, hearing you say the headache piece in conjunction with so many people are not even aware that they have a TBI potentially. Mm. Um, I have a lot of consultees will say, you know, I have movements. They just, I have all these clients who say it gives me headaches. It gives me headaches. Why do you think that is? What's going on? And I feel like that could be a real possibility, not a yeah. guarantee, but something to be curious to say that might prompt you to explore even further what is your history with injury mm -hmm. and brain injury? Um, that might be a little flag there that says we might have other modifications to make as well to support your brain and processing. Right. Yes. Way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I've just put it in my history taking. So I mm -hmm. go through all the symptoms like, uh, do you get headaches? How is your sleep? Do you have anxiety, depression? And then my, the bottom part of my history taking is all events but the last thing on the symptom is seizures or TBIs. Yeah. So I ask everybody and then explain it. Um, have you ever choked on anything? Had a uh, oxygen deprivation? Have you, which I work with a lot of DV women who've been choked unconscious, yeah. men in the head, so it's not visible. So they've been pounded in the head. Yeah. And so it's like looking at all of those things and including that in there. So they go, oh, well, yeah, that's happened. Oh yeah, that's happened. And you're like, okay, cha-ching. Yeah. Okay. So personal curiosity. So my mother had a brain tumor and had a brain surgery and wow. I have thought, yeah. So I'm curious about if somebody has had a medical procedure on their head, specifically, you know, dealing with the brain. Now hers was an acoustic neuroma. So it was right on the surface of the brain. So they didn't have to disturb anything internally, but still the, the inflammatory impact of having mm -hmm. that area worked on, she had some symptoms that to me seemed like TBI. 
Yes. So I'm curious, um, you know, in that investigation and history taking, would you include things like a brain surgery or a surgery on that area of the head? Because could that uh, create a TBI? Yes, even, yes, definitely. Even chemotherapy, because wow. it's, a, it's a neurotoxin, right? And it gives them brain fog and it affects their memory and wow. strokes, right? And so you have to look at all these things and kind of know what to ask. So you can go, okay, well, that is an injury to your brain, right? Mm. So this is a real kind of broadening and deepening of the definition of what a TBI really is. Mm -hmm. And from a therapist's perspective, when we're doing that history taking, making sure that we're taking a really holistic view of all of the different experiences that can produce injury to the brain, whether it be chemical, physical, inflammatory, et cetera. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. It's just leaving me with this great awareness of most intakes, we might inquire about the more traditional idea of a TBI, but mm -hmm. not the detailed questions that you listed out there that are the more disguised versions. Yeah. And how often is this possibly what's going on when we see a lack of effectiveness of EMDR that we end up writing off of, oh, EMDR just doesn't work for this person. Mm -hmm. I think there's many things that it could be attributed to, but including TBI in that, like being curious about that piece and saying, before we just write off, no, no EMDR, really leaning into, let's explore, you know, the potential injuries to the brain and how that could be affecting yeah. our responsiveness. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. When they have a car accident, it's like, okay, were you hit from behind? Were you broadsided? Did your head hit the window? right? Did you hit the, the airbag or the steering wheel? Yeah. And so even car accidents, as simple as that is asking, because that will clue you into whether or not there was a brain injury involved. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, another thing that I wanted to ask you about that you had talked about previously was the idea of processing trauma out of order with this population. Can you talk about that a little bit? What do you mean by that? And how do you make those clinical decisions? So normally the way I do a targeting sequence plan is everything that they divulge in their history taking, I get a SUD rating. So were you ever sexually abused or raped? Yes. What would you rate the rape? That's a 10. Sexual abuse, that's an eight, right? Mm -hmm. And so as I go through, I'm getting a SUD rating and then my targeting sequence plan starts at the bottom and I work my way up, right? Complex trauma. Right. With TBIs, the out of order is that specific TBI. So we're going to peel things away like we talked in the beaver dam, the, the small T's work our way up. Then when we get to that big T, we are going to chunk it and do three pieces, four pieces, five pieces, right? Mm -hmm. And each part has its own SUD rating. And then we are going to start with the lowest rating. So it will be out of order. And so interesting. They may not remember the actual injury, right? But they know what happened right before and that's least disturbing. So we're gonna process that. And then the next piece may be afterwards, they're in the hospital or they woke up, right? And then here is the next part. And then the actual part of maybe um, societal issues, family be not believing them and all that might be the worst for them and that's saved for last. Oh, then wow. once you process all the parts out of order, then you're going to put it back together when the suds like a three or less, then you put it in chronological order and then process it all out. So you make sure to clear out all the channels. Mm -hmm. so th there, there's similarity to the RTEP. 
Um, and the, the way traumatic. Yeah. Traumatic. Yeah. The way that you, you know, titrated in chunks like that. Um, so you're, you're looking specifically at the, um, the points of disturbance with the whole story of the injury, including the aftermath, including the, uh, what was happening right before, et cetera, and then working not necessarily chronologically, but in the order of distress, and then yes. you put it all together. Interesting. Yes. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, the why of that? I think it makes some intuitive sense, but, um, why in particular with this population is that method effective? Um, because they're already like we've talked with the axons and, and their brain not being right, them not feeling right, just being off kilter, they're already susceptible and overwhelmed as it is, like to sounds, to, to sights, to light, to yeah. everything. Yeah. The last thing you wanna do is to jump in at the worst thing and dysregulate them. Cause if they get dysregulated, you're not gonna make progress. You're gonna contain it and you're gonna go away. And that's usually what scares off therapists. And I call it the, oh crap moment. Oh crap, what do I do now? <laughs> right? Yes. And then you're sitting there breathing and sweating going, what do I do? What do I do? Yeah. And to avoid all that, doing it that chunk at a time for the lowest and working your way up works best for everybody. Right. So it's supportive to both the client and the therapist moving through that process. Yes. That makes sense. Yeah. So I have a, a general sense of, you know, these are considerations that we have to make for processing targets, not even related to the injury, but once their brain has been affected in this way, it could have an effect when we're processing something from when they were five, even if the injury happened at 25. Yes. And there's also what I'm hearing in this last bit is targeting the injury itself. Mm. So unique considerations for targeting and processing when the injury occurred and then the third piece of targeting life then thereafter and the mm. impact that that has had that they've either been aware is as a result of the injury or maybe that's new information they're learning by coming to you mm. of feeling like they've been misdiagnosed, not believed, you know, how their life has been changed since then. Yes. And the anger that goes with that, right? Yeah. They're angry because doctors told them, well, that, that head injury was three, four months ago. You can't be experiencing that now. It's like, all of a sudden you're going to wake up and develop anxiety or depression, mm -hmm. right? That doesn't happen. Right. So the frustration with the so-called experts, not understanding like delayed PTSD, yeah. the delayed onset of symptoms. And the only thing I can think of is if there's an injury to the brain, then it's going to take some time for it to find its new normal, even though it's not a good normal. Right. And after it settles down, that's when symptoms start to come out. Yes. Right. And so it may be three months, it may be six months after the injury. Right. So if someone says, oh, well, that was six months ago, everybody's telling me that can't be it mm. Dig deeper and further, because it totally could be what was going on with them. Well, and, and to me, it makes so much sense. And, and this goes for a lot of different kinds of trauma that there's a reason why we have the ASD, uh, the acute stress disorder diagnoses, and we don't give the PTSD diagnosis right away. What we're interested in allowing time for the natural healing mechanisms of the body to do what they're going to do before we label it as anything. And, and what you're saying is TBI is the same way. You got to let the dust settle for a minute. Mm -hmm. And one of the really uh, practical circumstantial realities for people is that if they've had a significant injury, 
they may have been at home more than usual. They may have gone on short-term disability, took some FMLA. And it's only when they try to re-engage with the world that they start noticing, oh, something's really different. Yeah. I used to be able to do this, to drive, et cetera, to go to the store and not feel anxious. I haven't been doing that for the last few months because I've been healing and at home more. And yeah. now suddenly I'm noticing that something is wrong because I'm trying to move back out into the world in a more uh, normal quote unquote way. Yes. So it's at that point where they really start to notice something's different. Yes. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it makes me Mel, think about in the way we talk about everything, every symptom is a strategy. Yes. This is the organism itself giving anxiety, depression, whatever the common symptoms are after a TBI as a strategy to protect itself. Right. Um, it just faced an injury, a pretty major yeah. life-threatening injury. If it happens to the brain, yeah. how do we exp- like the responsiveness of the system to say, I need strategy to be more aware, mm-hmm. more big energy to be cautious and careful or to, to withdraw, right. to, you know, sink into a safe place just at home, yeah, stay home. <laughs> and all of this is just yes. beyond conscious awareness. Like right. it is literally the organism doing all of that as a way to protect itself Absolutely. after having faced that injury. Yeah. And I think there's also a gender difference as well, because I work mm. with more women than men. I still have worked with my share of males, right? But the the male approach is, right? I went through football. Yeah, I've had it. Like I said, rub some dirt on it. I'm good yeah. until the fourth TBI comes up. And now there's something wrong and I can't function, yeah. right? And with women, their experiences they are dismissed by medical professionals and their family as in being all of a sudden um, either crazy, you know, over-emotional. And so each gender faces their own discrimination and has different sets of um, negative cognitions that go with it. Like women are more apt to say, I'm crazy. It was my fault. I should have known better. And the guys are more apt to say, um, I d- yeah, I know I did something wrong. I shouldn't have gone up on the ladder without somebody to hold the ladder. So I know I did something wrong, right. Right? but they get more nurturing from their wives, right? Where the women receive less nurturing and understanding. And it's like, yeah, I played football. I got concussions. You ought to be able to just rub Shake this up. up. Yes, exactly. So there's this difference that I see going on, whether that is societal norms or how we're raised or whatever, mm-hmm. but looking at your clients differently, the males and females to understand their personal experience. Right, right. And sort of the, the cultural and societal stories that get wrapped around that experience mm-hmm. and the yeah. way they insulate the symptoms in the aftermath of the TBI. Yeah, I should be able to do it. I should be able to do it all, right? Yeah. yeah. Or I'm being too sensitive, et cetera. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, so speaking of kind of the, the specific stories that get wrapped up in this, can you talk a little bit about interweaving? And so when, you know, when you're in the process with your clients and you're running into barriers, um, what are the specific interweaves that you rely on a lot, ones that you find most helpful for this population and kind of the, the corner case ones that are really unique to this population that maybe we wouldn't have thought of? Sure. Um, and so a lot of that really depends on the um, their life, how they live their life, right? Knowing all that about them. But it's, and I've got 
quite a list. It's not for everybody, but everybody's been different. So I just throw them all in there. Yeah. If someone else hasn't experienced what you experienced, does that mean you're faking it or lying about it? Oh, good mm -hmm. one. Oh, I like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if somebody else doesn't understand, does that mean you're faking it basically? Right. Oh, I like mm -hmm. that. <laughs> Make note of that. I know. <laughs> Oh, so, so before you keep going, Michelle, can you share with listeners where they will be able to find this list? Because I know they're going to want to have it. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I am um, writing a book on cognitive interweaves. So right now I'm looking at EMDR um, interweaves, a, an A to Z guide or something like that. So each chapter will have a things like attachment, abortion, adoption, affairs. And so you just pick the chapter for the clients. And obviously T would be for TBI, traumatic brain injuries. And you could flip to that chapter and find a list of the common ones that I've used for whatever is going on with them, whether it's learning to live with a new normal, not being believed, um, cumulative effect, whatever. Very cool. Okay. So whenever your book gets released, email us and we'll have you on as a guest again, and you can just talk about your book. <laughs> that would be awesome. Thank yeah, that's super fun. Cause I know, I know that listeners will be super interested in that. Mm -hmm. um, Cause that is so supportive to us. Uh, just, you know, when we're hitting barriers with clients and we're uh, kind of, you know, trying to expand our own creativity as an EMDR therapist and kind of moving away from just the basic interweaves that were taught in our initial training. So that's super exciting. Okay. So A to Z, but today we'll focus on the T. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so other things, um, being misdiagnosed is a really big one for a lot of clients. Yeah. And so there's that, that block for them um, in processing. So do you think it took so long to be diagnosed because you didn't fit their idea, their preconceived idea of what a brain injury is. Mm -hmm. Like if you go to a sports medicine neurologist, if it's not a sports injury, they might not be thinking out of the box right. to think that this could be, that's what's going on. Okay. Um, the other one is taken right from the research. Did you know that um, only 51% of supposed experts, neurologists, medical doctors, and psychologists were able to pass the TBI myth versus fact test. I and love you using statistics as interweaves. That's freaking fun. <laughs> <laughs> because it gives them a great idea. That means they have a 49% margin of error. So this isn't me. It's not my fault, right? It was the lack of education somewhere else that caused the misdiagnosis or delayed diagnosis. Yes. How I take cool. the blame off of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And in such a, um, a fact-based way, right? right. So, so much of the, the challenge sometimes with interviews is that clients write it off as, you know, we're the therapist and we're paid to be nice to them. But when right. you come up, you know, come up with an interweave that is statistical in nature, that is so founded in, you know, the research of it, there's no argument in the client system of this is just because you're my therapist and you have to be nice to me. And you're trying to remove my shame. It's no, this is just reality. Did you know this? Yeah. Wow. I love that. Yeah. Good. Uh, let's see. Did you know that a symptom of TBIs is proprioception problems, mm. which means your body has a hard time telling where it's at into in relation to things around you because they always say I'm clumsy. clumsy. I keep all, I keep bumping into things. What's the matter with me? That helps with that aspect. It's like, no, Such I didn't. Right. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. I feel like, I mean, this is a whole, this entire interview and in this section, especially is just this de-shaming mm-hmm. experience around TBI. There's an enlightenment of the why behind what I'm doing and what I'm struggling with that I carry shame over. Yeah. There's a clear understanding and the way Michelle, in which you present it, it's just like, this is a matter of fact. Yeah. And which I think is just so like supportive. Yeah. Supportive to even just as an interviewer of this, but then I imagine as a client, how supportive would that be mm-hmm. to say like, Oh, all of the story that I've tried to create to make sense of what my body's experiencing that I don't understand. Mm-hmm. So I've made up this story that's filled with shame and rejection and fear. Self-blame. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Then the matter of fact of just like challenging that feels so supportive and healing. Yeah. 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 Because I think it's a natural instinct where if the people around you don't understand or reject you or say this stuff, well, then if the majority of people are saying this, then it must be me. So then people internalize the experience on top of I'm a klutz and everything else. That's right. And right. then you come along. Yeah. Yeah. You come along as a disconfirming experience to all of that experience mm-hmm. that they've had so far around this injury and what it means. And I would imagine that because you speak uh, with a lot of confidence and knowledge behind it, and in this matter of fact way, that they integrate that a whole lot more easily. And so, uh, you know, for our listeners, even if you're not a TBI expert, really relying on the research and the science because it's there. So we don't have to, you know, try to de-shame from a place of uh, cross my fingers and hope that this works. You know, go back to the science, like go back to what the research is saying and let that support you. Yes. Mm In added layers, I've had one or two that were psychiatrically hospitalized after a TBI. Yeah. So they, they are depressed and then they start going, uh, oh my God, if this is as good as it gets, I don't want to live right? Mm -hmm. So, but it's passive suicidal ideation. It's not active, but we have this knee-jerk reaction. We, we don't want anybody to commit suicide. So we're quick to hospitalize. Right. And that's that added layer of now I'm crazy because I'm in the hospital with schizophrenics who were screaming through the night. And this is somebody who has been from the normative population didn't know this existed and now they're lumped into this category yes exactly yeah so remembering to potentially target the traumatic parts of their treatment not just of the injury but in that aftermath you know did they go to the hospital how were they treated um you know were they misdiagnosed all of that is part of the trauma for them yes Yeah. Oh, that's so important. I feel like we're just barely scratching the surface Mm -hmm. of what all you have. Running out of time, right? (laughs) Really really excited about it for myself and for our listeners. Um, So will you take a few minutes just to kind of share what your upcoming trainings are, where people can find more about this? I know you mentioned your book, but even other avenues that are available to them now, Mm -hmm. if they want to dive deeper. And, and if, um, if somebody wanted to do like an hour of consultation with you about a case where this is part of the presentation, you know, is that available? How would they reach you for that? Things like that. Okay. So yes, I do PRN consultation for people who have a specific case or or a specific client, right? And they don't necessarily want to specialize in it to take the training. So I do offer that. I have people from anywhere from Maine to Washington calling for that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's a matter of, um, if you call my number, 
I'm in session all day long. You won't get me. Yeah. So I say call Barbara. She's my business partner. She does the scheduling and billing. And her number is 719-989-8431. And you can get scheduled for PRN. Okay. Upcoming training. I do have the TBI training um, July 17th and 18th. And it's from nine to five mountain daylight time. So for anybody who's in a different time zone, please make the accommodations from there. You can access the registration on my website, themorrisseyinstitute.com under events. Um, and then you just go to registration and look for it. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, so do you have an email address? Like if somebody wanted to just kind of ask you a general question or get more information about trainings, is there an email that they should use? Sure. It's themorrisseyinstitute at gmail.com. Perfect. And so spelling that out because my name's unusual, <laughs> uh -huh. it's T-H-E-M-O-R-R-I-S-S-E-Y-I-N-S-T-I-T-U-T-E at gmail.com. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. And so for our listeners, we're going to have all of this info um, posted with the episode so that you guys can look at it and we'll uh, have some links and things like that so that you can uh, get in touch with Dr. Morrissey for consultation for upcoming training and for uh, keeping track of when that book is coming out because I'm super interested in that. <laughs> well, okay. So thank you so much for doing this today. This has been super enlightening just personally. I think for us, it's been yeah, very, yeah. very helpful because this is an area that we don't have a lot of experience in, which is why we wanted to do this interview. Um, so thank you so much for contributing your time and your expertise and in general to the world of VMDR for, you know, holding this population uh, in front of all of us to make yeah. sure that they get the care they need. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I really, it's like, how can I get more information out there? So yeah. I so appreciate what you guys do and having me on your show today. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, as we wrap up, um, first of all, I just want to reflect with you, like how great is it to have a guest? Right. I know. It's so nice. <laughs> and having done this, noticed that for a couple of years now, we've had guests that are like local people uh -huh. and then we've had a couple of others, but just to have an increase of potential interviews to coming in with other yeah. experts in the field mm -hmm. all over. I hope as you guys are listening are just as excited as we are on this end to do this. Um, but we will have this video posted on our Patreon. So we've got the audio that you're listening to now. If you're interested in watching the video, um, just to be able to see, you know, us in person mm -hmm. and um, Michelle in person and kind of some of the things that she was describing, you can find that on the Patreon as, as well as many, many other resources. Yes. Yeah. So we've got client demonstrations on there, um, videoed sessions, uh, resources, all kinds of things. What else am I missing that's on there? We've got a book club. Mm -hmm. um, well, and uh, yeah, and for our Patreon members, that's the, the place where we do a lot of just personal interaction and question asking and things like that. So um, it's just kind of our little community hub where mm -hmm. we get to get to know you guys more personally. Um, and t-shirts, stickers, all yeah. kinds of fun things. Out oh, there. yeah. Yeah. So um, to find that, that's at patreon.com slash beyond healing center. Um, and you can connect with us that way. So thank you guys so much for listening and we look forward to doing more interviews and thank you, Dr. Morrissey for your time. Thanks for listening to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. We hope something you've heard today will help you help your clients. Find our latest episode and more on our Facebook page or on our website, emdr-podcast.com. 
And don't forget to add us to your RSS feed or follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher so that you don't miss an episode. Please email questions and comments to noticethat at emdr-podcast.com. From all of us here at Notice That, see you next time.